Support for Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, who are excited to introduce their all-new Rate Shield approval. If you're in the market to buy a home, Rate Shield approval is a real game changer, and here's why. First, Quicken Loans will lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. But here's the crucial part: if rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to RocketMortgage.com/fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen. It's Tuesday, July 24th. For this episode, we'll be turning our attention to two companies that are completely new to the show. And joining me today via Skype to discuss them is Senior Motley Fool contributor Asit Sharma. Hey, Asit, great to have you with us. Hey, Vince. Thanks. Great to be here as always. And hello, listeners. Uh, have you been able to stay dry recently? Because the rain has been constant here. And I was looking at the 10-day forecast uh, for around Full HQ, and there are storms pretty much expected every single day in the 10-day forecast. What's it like down in Raleigh? So in Raleigh, it's overcast. Uh, it looks like a pool party that our swim team is supposed to have is going to get rained out. I will say that I just picked up two, or dropped off, sorry, two of my kids at camp in uh, just outside Philadelphia. And we were literally running from those storms on the way back. This was Sunday. It was like a hard move. Mm-hmm. I had my foot on the gas and dark clouds behind, but, but we outran that storm. Nice. So yeah. I feel for you. Yeah, my wife was actually driving back from that area too on Sunday, and she unfortunately right. got caught in the weather. And she said there was parts where they everybody on the highway emergency blinkers on, going like ten miles per hour. So it was pretty bad. Yeah. Um, let's kick off our discussion though. Uh, we're going to take a brief look first at Calivo Growers ticker CVGW. So this is a one point seven billion dollar market cap company that started started off as a farming co op converted to a corporation has been operating as one since 2001. So Calivo's primary business and claim to fame is as a distributor of avocados, uh, though it also deals with other fresh products uh, like tomatoes and papayas, and it's also branched out into some newer businesses like fresh packaged foods, which is pretty important. So I said, Calivo, this is a small cap stock. Uh, It's not exactly one I expect to make the front page of the Wall Street Journal very often. I'm curious, how did this company end up on your radar? Well, Vince, I was scanning, uh, we had an episode on uh, screening for stocks. This mm-hmm. was last year. I was looking for small cap consumer goods companies. And I think I set uh, like a target revenue growth rate. And that's how this company popped up on my screen. You say Calabo, I say Calabo. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. But uh, I was interested because Calabo Growers is in a very expanding um, market, this, the global market for avocados, because it's such a nutrient-dense, uh, rich food um, with many health benefits, the market's growing at around a 6% annual growth rate per year. It's about a $13 um, billion market. So I thought this might be an interesting niche company to follow, and I started writing about it. And I've since been um, every quarter checking in on earnings has pretty decent earnings. The company nets about 4% for um, on its profit margin. It has about $1.1 billion in the trailing 12-month revenues. So it's a smaller company. The market capitalization is roughly $1.6 billion. I like these little um, 
out of the way companies which dominated the market. And the last thing I'll say about Clover before flipping it back to you is uh, this company based in California gets its avocados primary from cooperative growers, as you mentioned. Uh, in California, it also imports from Mexico. The latest stats I have for the uh, California crop, that these are from 2016, this company had nearly 30% share of the, the entire California crop. So it sort of dominates in its niche. Uh, fascinating, small concern to follow. Yeah, this discussion, uh, definitely similar to the conversation that we had about Funko not too long ago. And it's cool with this business, uh, the company separates uh, their uh, overall business into three operating segments. They have fresh products, uh, Calvo Foods, and then their Renaissance Foods group. So the last one was an acquisition from 2011. Um, fresh products and Renaissance make up over 90% of Calvo's annual revenue, which cleared uh, that $1 billion milestone you mentioned for the first time in fiscal 2017. And I think Renaissance in particular has become uh, kind of a highlight for shareholders, given its long growth streak, had 25 quarters of double-digit growth uh, year over year through fiscal 2017, and has, that has helped the segment to grow. Now it contributes over 40% of the top line. And another important role I think Renaissance plays is to stabilize the company's results. You know, Avocado consumption has definitely uh, been trending upwards pretty consistently for years at this point. Um, and U.S. avocado consumption hit 7.1 pounds per person in 2017. Uh, but supply and pricing, as you can imagine, are very much affected by the annual crop uh, and the different regions that it gets it uh, gets its crop from. Uh, California, you mentioned Mexico, also some places like Peru. And uh, things like seasonality and input supply come up a lot for the company's that we discussed, but for a company that has over half of its business tied directly to fresh produce, this seems like really one of the biggest risk factors for investors to consider. And in their results, they've talked about how uh, wildfires, droughts, and some of these things can affect the pricing and the supply that they have for what is a very strong growing demand for you know this staple product of theirs. Yeah, um, if you decide to follow this stock, listeners, or perhaps invest in it, you should know that the avocado crop is an on-year, off-year crop. So one year of sort of low growth and then a bumper crop the next year. We're on an on-year in 2018, and we were looking at a – we, as if I'm an industry expert, which I'm not. <laughs> experts were looking at a, a very large volume uh, avocados, but just recently, and this goes back to some of the risk factors, perhaps tied to global, global warming, they had record heat out in California, I think 115 degrees in avocado growing regions. So that's taken a little bit of edge off of what would have been a very productive year. The last thing I want to say about Palavo is it has this 43% interest, which Vince talked about, in a company called Fresh Realm LLC. It's a very tiny company, which makes fresh foods and milk kits, and they struck a deal with Weight Watchers International. Vince introduced listeners to Weight Watchers late last year, and we've also talked about it on this show, uh, what a great run that's had with the Oprah endorsement. Uh, Clavo also has, through Fresh Realm, has struck a deal with um, Kroger Company, so their milk kits will soon be in Kroger stores. The, vol the volume or revenue from the subsidiary is really tiny. Uh, small company to begin with, but this revenue that they received from their subsidiary rose tenfold in the last quarter to their interest was 106000 Now, that sounds like peanuts for a publicly traded company, and it is. 
However, the long-term potential uh, in the meal kit business for a small player that's not trying to take over the market as, as a HelloFresh or Blue Apron might, there's potential there, unchallenged potential in, in some cases that the small uh, company has signed some deals with other retailers, which will be disclosed in the back half of the year. We don't know which names they are yet, but I'm also intrigued by this small ownership stake in Fresh Realm. Yeah. The last thing I'll end on is uh, I was actually looking at your coverage on this company in fool.com. Uh, you had referred to Calavo as a this small but mighty kind of dividend payer. Um, the company offers shareholders an, uh, a single annual dividend payment based on the latest 95% per share distribution, stock yield about 1%. Um, and the company's dividend history is not super well established, but there's no denying that the total returns versus the broad market have been just unbelievable. And that's whether you look at the past year, or if you go back five, 10 years, um, definitely an outperformer here. Um, and at the same time, stock does have a bit of a premium valuation, currently trades at about 33 times forward earnings. But even with that um, higher valuation, the higher price point, I think you have to appreciate the story here, given the growing popularity of avocados worldwide. And even in the company's main market in the US, uh, uh, Calavo mentions uh, demographic changes that offer a major tailwind in that the U.S. Hispanic population is set to double in the next three decades, and then regions like Mexico are already known to consume far more avocados on a per capita basis. So, the run-up from that. And then also, you have a business that uh, really benefits significantly from scale. Uh, Calavo, as we've talked about, with that 30% share of the California crop back in 2016, it's one of the biggest avocado distributors among the 100 or so competitors in the market. And the company mentions uh, that a good portion of its cost structure beyond the fruit itself is fixed. So, the higher the volumes, the lower the cost per pound of product. That scale can be really helpful here. And so, just an interesting uh, smaller cap company that we like to in introduce every couple episodes. Um, next up, we'll move on to our main topic, which is a recent retail IPO to consider. Support for The Motley Fool and Industry Focus comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Let's talk about buying a home for a minute. Because of rising interest rates, there's a lot of unpredictability when it comes to buying a home these days. It's causing a lot of anxiety with folks. Well, our friends at Quicken Loans are doing something about that. They're calling it the power buying process. Here's how it works. Quicken Loans will verify your income, assets, and credit in less than 24 hours to give you a verified approval. This gives you the strength of a cash buyer. Then, once you're verified, you qualify for their all-new exclusive rate shield approval. First, they'll lock your rate for up to 90 days while you shop. Now, here's the best part. If rates go up, your rate stays the same. But if rates go down, your rate also drops. Either way, you win. It's the kind of thinking you'd expect from America's largest mortgage lender. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Again, that's rocketmortgage.com fool. Rate shield approval only valid on certain 30-year purchase transactions. Additional conditions or exclusions may apply. Based on Quicken Loans data in comparison to public data records. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. So we've received a few requests recently to talk about BJ's Wholesale Club. So they priced their IPO in late June last month at $17 under the ticker BJ. Uh, shares are up about 50% from that level uh, in that 
approximately one month of training. Uh, the chain's been around actually since the 1980s, but BJ's was taken private in 2011 by private equity investors for about $2.8 billion. Those shareholders still own, I think, about 70% of the company. Um, BJ's locations are concentrated on the East Coast. They have 215 stores, 134 gas stations, and about $13 billion of revenue in the trailing 12 month period. That puts its business at about one tenth the size of industry leader and closest peer Costco. And that matchup was actually the main point of interest from listeners who want to know, you know, how do these two companies compare? So before we get into that, though, um, I figure it's helpful to lay some groundwork by hitting uh, the strengths and weaknesses in this retail story. So I said, if you're selling more of the bull thesis for the company and some of the pros, I guess, uh, what are the things that jump out to you? So reading through the company's prospectus just before it went public, I was impressed by a number of things which I wasn't familiar with. Uh, as it had been private for many years, as you mentioned, Vince. This company, BJ's, has three times the number of clubs that Costco does in its core Northeast market. So BJ's basically started in the Northeast. That's a lucrative market. Uh, It says, the company says that there's a disproportionate amount of U.S. GDP concentrated in the U.S., and that's true to some extent, although we do have so many metropolitan areas. I could make an argument that California Uh, also has a a great share of U.S. GDP. We'll return to California uh, later in this discussion. I was impressed that the company has $2 billion worth of annual sales from its two private label brands, Berkeley Jensen and Wellesley Farms. BJ's used to have 13 private label brands, and it cut these uh, labels down to two and became more efficient with them. So it's a well-run business in the aspect of understanding uh, how this relationship between uh, open goods and and private goods functions and how to maximize that opportunity. I did want to bring up something again for later discussion. The company had about two, um, half of its adjusted EBITDA, so earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization from its membership fees. So just remember that uh, statistic, folks, because when we talk about Costco, we'll return to this. I like that it has a positioning that's sort of between the warehouse and grocery store. It has 7,200 stock keeping units or SKUs on average, and that compares to an industry average of 4,500 SKUs. So while you won't see quite the amount of bulk products in a BJ's as you will in a Costco, there are many sections that are more like a traditional grocery store, and the company tells that as an advantage. I think it is an advantage, but there's some vulnerability in there as well because you're straddling two different concepts. Um, The company also has a warehouse industry-leading average of visits by members. So on average, members visit about 22 times a year, basically twice a month, and that's a pretty high frequency for a club membership. More typical is maybe once a month, once every six weeks. So there's a distinct advantage there related to its high loyalty. The membership renewal for customers who have been with BJ's for two to three years was around 86% in the 2017 year. That was an all-time high. So I want to put in one more advantage that the company has in that it has a focus on reasonably well-off households uh, who have an income of $75,000 or above. Now, in a two-earner household, that's not an upper-class income, but it's a very high base level versus a grocery store's target, which could be uh, $20,000, $25,000 below that, or uh, a uh, club target, 
which would be also in the $50,000 range, and dollar stores go below there, etc. So many nice things popped out from reading this. I think if you're looking at BJ's as a long-term holding, you're interested in the fact that it's situated on the East Coast. It's small in comparison to Costco. It's not straddling the whole United States with a bunch of distribution centers. So small, nimble, uh, with a good handle on running its business. Yeah, I'll add to that a few things you mentioned. Uh, the private label brands definitely interesting. One how they've consolidated from that thirteen to the two, and they've mentioned that those private label brands have doubled their share of merchandise sales in the past five years. So they're seeing a lot of progress there. And as we know, as we've talked about previously with private labels, they tend to help increase customer loyalty, help with profitability as well in terms of the better margins. And then some of the other momentum uh, that I'll close out with for this part of the discussion in terms of uh, you know the BJ's Wholesale Club business. Uh, is uh, with the comparable sales, they're seeing an uptick there, two uh, percent excluding gasoline sales for the most recently reported quarter, and then as a result of some initiatives from the CEO Chris Baldwin and other leadership uh, members of leadership at the company, uh, they've managed to do things like negotiate two hundred sixty million dollars of savings from their suppliers, and profitability for the company has been improving with expanding gross and adjusted EBITDA margins, and. Uh, last one for me in terms of uh, more of a long term outlook. The, I think the concentrated geographical footprint for BGS Hosa Clubs on the East Coast uh, leaves it with an opportunity to expand. And in the IPO perspective, uh, prospectus, the company says that its distribution centers that it currently has can support an additional 100 locations on the East Coast. Um, and they plan to open about 15 to 20 new clubs in the next five years. So, uh, keep in mind that its 215 club footprint is still quite small compared to uh, both Costco. Costco around 700 and Sam's Club, which is part of Walmart, around 600. Um, so you could see an opportunity both within the East Coast, you know, its area of strength, but also moving up broader if it does want to start to expand into other parts of the U.S. But in terms of the weaker side of the story, uh, some of the cons or the the more bare sentiment, I think there are also some concerning things to point out in terms of the company's track record. Um, you know, for example, I just mentioned the 2% comparable sales growth last quarter, excluding gasoline sales. But if you look back further, the company has logged negative comps five years straight. Uh, and so the recent uptick is definitely a uh, something that we don't know in terms of consistency, how well they'll be able to keep that up. And it, not nearly as reassuring to potential investors. Was there anything uh, on that side, on this kind of more negative side, that uh, that jumped out to you, Asit? Sure. So, uh, if you look back over the last four or five years, the company's top line has been static, sort of between the twelve and a half billion to thirteen billion mark that you mentioned, Vince. Um, also, in the past, it was heavily indebted. The reason that BJ's went public was, of course, to reward some of the private equity shareholders, but also to uh, pay down some debt. The, the company has now about one point eight billion dollars. Of debt, and it used mostly all of its $600 million in IPO proceeds to become a little less indebted. Uh, I often talk about debt in relation to EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Um, and the ratio that BJ's has now is this really ballpark numbers, but it has about three times debt to annual EBITDA. Not so bad anymore. You would think with the interest expense that the company saved from refinancing, which is, which is about $55 million in a year, we'd have some really good net income boost to celebrate. But I want to talk about the company's margins for a second. The company in its fiscal year that ended February 
2018, made about $52 million on $12.5 billion worth of income. That is a profit margin of 0.4%, so less than um, 1%. In the grocery industry, in the grocery industry, uh, if you're making 1%, that's great. The club industry, the warehouse industry, if you're making 2%, that's sort of a cold standard. You basically sell billions and billions worth to grab that 2%, and that's what Costco does. Uh, and the thing that BJ's has not been able to do, despite being owned by a private equity group for the last five or six years, is improve its operations enough to, to scale that one uh, to two percent range. Now, this refinancing will help, and certain cost initiatives that uh, Chris Baldwin, the CEO, has initiated in procurement will help. I think last year they were able to get an additional two hundred sixty million dollars of savings on an annual basis from procurement initiatives. But the company straddling these two categories, I think you will find it very hard to get to where Costco is, that 2% of um, net profit. And that is a little bit of a risk. It makes it vulnerable to Costco moving eastward. So I mentioned California. Costco has a concentration first in North America. About 87% of its revenue comes from the U.S. and Canada, but 30% of Costco's net revenue comes from California. Near-term strength, long-term vulnerability. What's smart for Costco is to gradually move eastward. Of course, it's on the East Coast, but that's the second big dense area for Costco over time to be extremely competitive in to reduce its reliance on California. And this, if you read Costco's annual report, you'll see that's usually the first risk that the company lists in its long list of uh, risks that affect its operations that's got these concentrations in North America and California. So at some point, we may see fiercer competition on the East Coast. I worry about BJ's margins and ability to respond to um, more aggressive encroachment by Costco. Yeah, especially as thin as those margins are. And these next points that I'll make uh, definitely delve more into that direct comparison with Costco that our listeners uh, wanted to see. Um, so, another regular contributor to both industry focus and full.com, Adam Levine Weinberg, he wrote a piece soon after the BJ's IPO, kind of laying out his bearish view of the company. And I think he mentioned some pretty sobering points. Uh, so, something that really jumped out to me uh, was very eye opening. Uh, he talks about productivity. Of Costco versus BJ's locations. So estimates for sales per square foot come in at about $540 for BJ's, but $1,245 for Costco. And that helps explain why, even though Costco has about three and a half times the store base of BJ's, it has closer to 10 times the revenue. Um, so in terms of efficiency and productivity, you can definitely see the differential, uh, the difference between these two companies. And even on a membership basis, uh, Costco locations have about three times as many members as BJ's clubs, and Costco's customers tend to be even higher income. I think we said that BJ's targets about the 75,000 annual income demographic. Uh, Costco's customers, uh, closer to 100,000, they tend to spend more. And even on renewal rates, 86%, pretty strong for BJ's. Uh, renewal rates for Costco, about four percentage points higher for Costco at over 90%. So again, just uh, a look in terms of the differences between these two companies and how Costco, even at its larger scale and size, is able to eke out uh, some stronger points there. So final uh, kind of thoughts on this comparison. Uh, you have to also consider uh, things like the valuation. So, BJ shares trading about 22 times forward 
earnings. Costco had a pretty good premium to that of 32 times earnings. Um, something that I look at here, just sales from Costco's Kirkland Signature private label came out to $35 billion in 2017. That's nearly three times company-wide revenue for BJ's. And I think uh, you know, we mentioned this with Calvo, but this is also a space where that scale is really important when you're working on these razor thin margins. Um, having that additional buying power, that negotiating power with suppliers, and then having such a strong uh, private label business, in this case for Costco, I definitely think has its advantages. I'm curious, anything jump out to you um, for this comparison? And then also, what your thoughts are in terms of somebody who wants to invest in the kind of wholesale club retail uh, niche? What if you have a strong thought in terms of whether both companies, one or the other, uh, how, where do you stand there, Asit? Sure. So let me tackle your first question first, Vince. This idea of uh, square footage productivity is fascinating to me. Uh, BJ's is focusing now on an 85,000 square foot concept. And for a long time, experts in the industry associated higher productivity per square foot with smaller stores. Companies like Costco and actually Whole Foods have turned that notion, that notion on its head. Costco's average uh, warehouse size, as many investors would know, is about 145,000 square feet. And this is the flip side of the economics that BJ touts as an advantage, that it's part grocery store, part wholesale club. If you have a, an edifice which is almost 150,000 square feet, you've got the room to put appliances in, to put garden in, to put a pharmacy in. These are all higher ticket uh, items and revenue drivers versus trying to sell boxes of cereal, not in bulk, but as actually cereal that you find in a grocery store in individual boxes. So the, the disadvantage of having that 85,000 square foot store is you lose out on those big ticket items which generate those higher dollars per sales foot and then flow through to the bottom line. Costco, as I mentioned, has got that 2% margin. We always, those who follow Costco, like to look at, hey, what's the revenue for its membership fees? You look at that number, that's almost always very close to what it makes in net profit each year. Everything else is just in and out. That's a formula which Costco has shown they can do at great scale with very large stores. What I'm worried about, too, with BJ's, dependence on sort of a quasi-grocery store within its stores is it's more susceptible than Costco to retail disruption. We've seen the channels which people buy their goods change almost overnight in the last, it's really two years, but it feels like it's overnight as more commerce shifts to delivery via Instacart, ordering online. I think Costco with its very strong balance sheet has more of a means to invest in the technology to compete with e-commerce and the changing ways that consumers purchase. The last thought, do you buy both of these? Do you favor one over the other? I think Costco is still the gold standard as far as warehouse clubs are concerned. I think that BJ's has to show us uh, some operational improvement. And we often talk about IPOs. We tell investors on this show, hey, wait a couple of quarters, maybe then take a position unless it's a really great concept. I would say wait one to two years. I think we need one to two years of data to see how BJ's under its relatively new leadership can work this equation of now being a publicly traded company, accessing um, more expansion in Florida, in the mid-Atlantic, outside its home base of the Northeast. I would wait before investing. 
Uh, it's had a good run since, since IPO, but it's only been a few weeks. Uh, not a bad business, but not a compelling reason in these financials or the, the narrative to invest today. My perspective. What about you, Vince? What are your thoughts? I, I think I'm in the same page. I think the the rule, the rule of thumb that we establish with IPOs in terms of uh, giving them at least a few quarters to evaluate the results as a public company is really important here. You know, we've seen that comparable sales growth, that two percent in the latest quarter. How consistent can they can that be? How how well will they be able to keep that up? I'm definitely gonna be watching that and seeing how well they catch up in terms of the more efficient operations of their larger competitor. Whether that profitability catches up, the productivity of its stores, once they've established uh, potentially a, this stronger track record of growth, um, I definitely can see the, uh, a better story there for an investor. But otherwise, if you're really looking into this space, uh, as you described it, Costco, definitely the gold standard. Um, and you know that's the final thoughts for me. Anything else from you, Asset? Uh, the only last thought that I have for both of these companies. The industry surprised me, just doing some research for this show, it's still growing uh, by some sources at a compounded annual growth rate of 4% to 6%. I thought with all the change that's coming, especially from the encroachment of companies like Aldi and the German grocery Lidl, expansion of Wegmans, and just the grocery wars that affect that grocery component, that the warehouse segment uh, might have a cloud over it. And listeners, I found out that it still is a persuasive segment to invest in because people, at the end of the day, they love to have the membership and uh, have the savings that they can rely on through the year. Still not a bad place to invest. If you're curious with everything we see with grocery stores and what's happened to those financials, is that spilling over to this area? Just a little bit, really not in a significant way. Okay. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Asset. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you, fools, for listening. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Full we'll on.